Chapter 3 Continued When I came on Morgan Ridge, it was in Las Vegas, New Mexico, more than six months later. He was in the saloon there, and I had walked up to the bar near him and said bluntly, You murdered Jim Southerton. You tortured him worse than any Apache. You lie, he shouted at me. But at least twenty men were listening, and he looked worried. You stole gold money from him and left a trail of it clear across the country. It was English gold. Nobody was doing anything but listening as I went on. I traced Bob Flange by it, too. Flange? He missed his first shot. I didn't. Get out of here, kid. You're crazy. That belt you have on, I said steadily, is a British uniform belt you stole from his outfit after you killed him. You're a damn liar, Rich said hoarsely, and he spoke. He drew his gun. It was cold out on the hill the next morning, with a raw wind blowing, so they buried him in a shallow grave, wrapped in his blanket, then hurried back to the saloon for a drink. Frank Hastings had dropped from sight, and I had never found him. The coals were almost gone. You'd best get some sleep, Kate, I said. It is going to be a long night. She was getting to her feet when we heard the shots, a sudden volley, and then one more. The shots came from the town. Kate turned sharply to me. Con, where's Tom? Fear tore my throat like a rasp. I turned and ran in a stumbling gait toward the place where the men had bedded down. Tom's bedroll was there, and it was empty. Priest rolled over and lifted himself on one elbow. What's wrong? What's happened? Tom's gone, I said, and there's a shooting in town. His horse was gone, too. When I turned from checking the Remuda, everybody was up and armed. And then we heard the galloping of horses out on the prairie. The riders drew up well out in the darkness, at least a hundred yards off. There was a thump of something thrown to the ground, and a voice shouted, And don't come back! They rode off quickly into the darkness, and we went out there, bending down. I lit a match. It was Tom Lundy, and he was dead. He'd been shot three times in the back, and then somebody had turned him over and shot him between the eyes from such close range that the wound was marked with powder burns. We carried him back to the hill and laid him down on the ground, and Kate Lundy came and stood over him. He was her last living relative, and he'd been both brother and son to her, and after her husband had been killed by Indians, Tom was all she had left, and now he was gone. His gun was in its holster, the throng still in place, evidence that he had not expected shooting trouble. Standing there, we looked down at those bullet holes, three shots in the back at close range that had ripped through his back, tearing great holes through his chest, and in case he was still not dead, a man had leaned over him and finished the job with a pistol bullet. Suddenly, Red Mike began to swear in a choked, horrible voice. Todd Molloy said, If it's the last thing I do, I'm going to burn that town. Let's do it now, Carson said. Right now. No. The word was flat, cold, in a voice such as I had never heard Kate Lundy use before. No, she repeated. We're pulling out. No. That was all she would say, and the men were silent. Nobody slept that night, but in the morning, Naylor and Priest went out and dug a grave on a flat place in the very top of a hill. They dug it deep, and we buried Tom Lundy there. 
looking off toward town using the field glasses I kept in my saddlebag, I could see the glint of the rifles from the rooftops or corrals. They're waiting for us, Kate, I said. They are waiting to get us when we ride in. We're not going in. Rule Carson swore. Now look here, Mrs. Lundy, he began. Tom was... Tom Lundy, she said, was my brother. He took my husband's name, and my husband considered him his son. She paused. We wanted children, but we never had any. Only Tom. She turned to Red Mike. Mike, I want you to saddle the steel dust, and I want you to ride to Texas. I want you to find 25 men who can handle guns and who can take orders. She looked over at the town. Can you find that many? I can find a hundred, he said. Volunteers, if you want them. I want men who work for wages, she said, and I have the money to pay them. Red Mike turned to look at me. Who do you think, he asked. The Cuddy Boys, I said, and Harvey Nugent, Sharky, Madden, and Keel. Some of the Barricka men, or Clements boys, if they're around. Kate stood there, looking toward the town, a tall, lonely woman with high cheekbones and a face still lovely, despite what sun and wind had done to it. You're going to fight, Kate? Not the way they expect, she said. Not at all the way they expect. But it was the morning that it began, and it was a kind of warfare I had not expected and was not prepared for, nor were they. She wrote three telegrams that morning and sent Delgado off on a fast horse to take them to the nearest station to the east. It was a water tank and saloon 20 miles away. The day drifted slowly by, and the men sat around playing cards. Towards sundown, they drifted the horses to the nearest creek and watered them. Riflemen still stood guard on rooftops and in the alleys approaching the town. Kate remained in her ambulance most of the day, and the rest of us waited. They must be getting kind of nervous down there, Todd Malloy said finally. We've got the edge, because we know what we're doing and they don't. The thoughts seemed to cheer everybody up a little, and I noticed that every once in a while one of the men would go up the rise and stand there looking off toward the town. They could see us up there, and our inaction must be puzzling to them. They will not sleep much tonight, Darren Gett commented, nor did they last night. Kate looked over at him, nor will they for many nights to come. At noon on the third day, a rider came toward us bearing a white flag. With my field glasses, I could see it was Bannerman, the one man in town. Useless it was, Hardiman, who might be allowed close enough to talk. Bannerman had always been fair. He had staked more than one busted trail hand to a final drink when his money was gone, and had even furnished a couple of riders with horses to get back to their outfits. Kate, Duraket, and I went down the slope to meet him. I had nothing to do with this, Mrs. Lundy, he said. I want you and the boys to know that. Nothing at all. I didn't even know it was going to happen. Did they ask you to come out and look the situation over, I asked? Yes. They're worried. They can't figure what's happening. They've been laying for you, expecting an attack just any minute. Let them worry, Kate replied. Mr. Bannion, you have the reputation for being a fair man. Now we're going to give you a chance to save yourself. 
You will have no time to consider this, but take my advice and do as I say. Go back to town. Tell them the truth, that we would not allow you into our camp. Then sell your saloon. Sell my saloon? He repeated in astonishment. Well, I can't do that. Anyway, they, they would think it mighty odd. Would you rather sell at a loss? And you may have to, or come out with nothing at all. What do you mean by that? Mr. Bannion, Kate asked quietly, did you ever see a town die? He just looked at her, and after a minute he said, Thank you, ma'am, thank you. Then he turned his horse. Mr. Bannion, Kate added, and this is for you, and you alone to know, 100 miles west of here there's a creek that flows along the edge of a wide flat. There are hills to the north and some cottonwoods there. It's on the main line of the railroad. Well, I looked at her. Of course, I knew the place. We'd camped there once. In fact, I myself had camped there several times and had taken our herd there the season before. What she had in her mind I did not know, but looking at her face, and never had I seen it so cold, I knew what was going to happen to the town. That town, that town that had killed her brother, was going to die. It was not a man, not several men who were going to die, but the town itself.